What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Security Squawk Podcast, where we help you understand the business side of cybersecurity. Got Ryan O'Hara, Randy Bryan, Reginald Andre, the usual suspects on the show. I'm your co-host, Brian Horning. Before we jump into things, guys, remember, we do this out of the goodness of our hearts. We don't... uh, charge you fees. We don't bore you with commercials. So all that we ask is you help us grow our show by sharing it and liking it wherever you see us, whether that's on social media, YouTube, uh, Facebook. I don't think we do Instagram. No TikTok yet. But uh, we're on every podcasting platform you can imagine out there. And it would really help us out if you could give us a review. Five-star review would help. Gentlemen, how are you? Good. So, I'm good. I have a question for you, man. What's up? Why are you wearing a jacket? I'm cold. <laughs> <laughs> it's like 85 degrees outside. Is it not that? Is it not yeah, there where you are? Cold. It's 49. Ooh, wow. you, you're just twisting that knife, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm, also wearing, I'm also wearing it because Penn State's four now. Oh, that's right. <laughs> It's also like over a hundred, like a hundred days, I think this summer, man, it was a horrible summer. So I'd rather have probably have rather been with uh, Brian all summer. I'm thinking, uh, I'm thinking our weather will get pretty, I'm sure we'll get another warm spell once this, uh, the remnants of this hurricane leave, leave our area. So other than that, yeah, it's pretty cold here, man. Haven't seen the sun in a few days. It's very wet. But could be worse. I could be in South Florida. No, no, we're good. We just had a few bent trees and Southwest Florida. Okay, okay. All right, guys. So uh, today we're going to update you on the two ransomware attacks we talked about last week. One at UA uh, LA County Unified School District. The other one at in Suffolk County in New York. Some interesting developments there. Uh, We want to kind of talk a little bit about. how uh, ransomware actors are actually getting into your systems. And there's a new, I guess, WWE champion for how they're getting into your systems and it's not phishing. Um, So we're going to cover that today. Um, And then we have a very popular luxury car manufacturer dealing with a ransomware attack among other entities. I'm going to jump into a discussion about vulnerabilities because one of the things we talk about all the time on the show is making sure that we're doing cybersecurity and handling things in a manner where we're doing multiple things or what we call layers. Um, and we're going to kind of talk about, you know, why it's important that you look at different things uh, across your cybersecurity spectrum on what you're going to protect and how you're going to protect it. Because we have some examples of things that get circumvented, like your MFA and your, you know, your endpoint, you know, your antivirus that you're using today. Um, and having just one of those or just a couple of those things in place is a really bad idea. So we're going to get into talking about why you want to make sure you have multiple layers and where these different vulnerabilities can exist throughout your, you know, computing environment. So you want you want to call it that because you can't just you know, say your network because you got people working from home now um, and you got to protect all of it, unfortunately. Um, so, guys, what's going on over at L.A. County? I mean, I 
I it happened right away. It happened last week. And when it first happened, I kind of thought to myself, wow, actually it happened two weeks ago um, because I remember having a conversation with a client about it. Um, but it seems like in the last week and over the weekend, anyway, the stories have just picked up on this massively. Um, so what's happening? Basically they didn't pay the ransom and the data has been leaked. Um, is the gist of what's going on right now. So, so, uh, do we know why they are not, they didn't pay or what, what's behind the decision not to pay? I'm not sure. I'm over here, uh, shaking my head about to break my neck though, because it sounds like, um, about 500 gigabytes of data. And we're talking things like, like pass, uh, like social security numbers, passports, um, you know, probably health records of kids, you know, who's got what special needs kids. I mean, this, this is bad. I don't understand why they refuse to pay the ransom. Like they, I'm not saying we should or shouldn't pay the ransom. That's probably a whole nother discussion. Um, but they just basically refused and the, the bad guys already had the data. And then boom, they've released it. So, and the only the only statement they made to that that effect is is they they said that paying the ransom wasn't a guarantee that the hackers wouldn't leak the information anyway, which is true statistically. Yep. Yeah, and also too, um, Carvalho, he was the former superintendent of uh, Miami Dade Public Schools, and that was the fourth largest school district, and we had that incident as well. And it's kind of um, two two things saying here. Carvalho is saying that. It was only information related to attendance and academic records. But then we have uh, researchers at Checkpoint um, Software Technology saying that it's about 248,000 files containing social security numbers, contracts, tax forms, invoice, invoices, passports, and more. So it's kind of like the, the superintendent is saying one thing, but then researchers are saying, nope, we're, we're finding other stuff. Okay, so we'll dig into that in a minute here. But um, Carvajalo, or however you say it. Carvalho, yeah. He's the superintendent of the school district. A couple of things to highlight. Uh, Vice Society, which has been a very, uh, you know, we, <clears throat> I guess we've never mentioned Vice Society on this show before, but but it seems like uh, somebody has done some research recently, uncovered this group with this name and has attributed them to a lot of attacks on schools and municipalities. So they like to go after government, um, which is interesting. Um, and they've claimed responsibility for the attack and they have published this information on their dark website. Um, uh, law enforcement is still analyzing the full extent of the data release and has set up an incident response hotline to help anyone affected by the data leak. We'll talk about that in a second. <laughs> and the LA Unified is the country's largest school district with more than 1,000 schools and 600,000 students. So, number one, you know, I guess going back to what you said originally there, I, when I hear you say that, I just hear, I just think about all the different conversations that I've had with business owners and business people, clients, when we're telling them what their cyber risk is and they're going, or we're opening up the discussion about their cyber risk and they're saying things like, 
well, we don't have that much, you know, any data on our network that anybody would want, or we don't have that much. It's amazing to me how much people don't realize what's stored and where it's stored across their network. Um, that really, you know, you just don't realize these things are being stored, you know, or, or, or kept or, um, you know, I think of reminds me of a, a time that we ran a, a scan on a client's network for various things. One of those was to look for PII and we came across like 2 million uh, social security numbers. And we told them you have 2 million social security numbers among other you know data points, but we're like, you have 2 million social security numbers on your network. They're like, no, we don't. It's impossible. What they didn't know is, is that somebody that, that they hired to build them a custom software application for some reason, this application would generate either a report or a log file on every computer stored in a location unbeknownst to the user with social security numbers in that log file. So we, you know, certain computers, some of them had hundreds of a hundred thousand or more social security numbers and other computers had a few hundred, but you tally that up across the entire company and that's how you get to your 2 million records. Um, and you know, they really just had no clue that this existed on their network. And, um, and then these are the things that people that happen to people after a cyber attack, because the cyber criminals have the same tools that we use to go figure out where this stuff is mm -hmm. and they go find it and they take it. And now look, they're releasing it on their dark websites and that's how this stuff goes down. So did you think the same thing? I mean, I, that's kind of what I thought when I hear this, it's like, you know, at first they're saying, you know, it's not serious data, but we're going to find out that it is like Randy said. Yeah. I mean, the, the story, it's kind of all over the place. It sounds like the, the officials for the school district are saying one thing and then, you know, there's, there's signs and, and uh, outside entities that are, are saying something totally different. So it's one of those ones where time's going to tell. And, you know, we're going to we're going to hear that fourth, fifth uh, version of the story where we get the real information. And, yeah. I mean, and I would add that any pretty much any information that they can get is going to be valuable data um, because, yeah, so maybe at the certain level, you know, organizations that want to make, you know, 100 million a month or something like that. OK, they may ignore it, but eventually that's going to trickle down. There's going to be a criminal somewhere down the chain that is going to take that and maybe they do a hand built target where they put together some random information they pulled, you know, they pulled from the dark web, or I bet you will start seeing AI on the dark web that pulls together stuff to build profiles on people. Um, regardless, any information basically can be, can be valuable because it can use, be used to get people's guard down um, at the very least, you know, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm Joe from your lawn service. You know what I mean? Oh, okay, Joe. And you know, your check didn't go through. Okay, blah, blah, blah. I mean, the littlest of information can can be used um, sometimes by itself and often collaborated with other information that gets leaked. So yeah, and there's a there's a black market for student transcripts. Mm -hmm. So that yeah, right. so they can use it for that. And, uh, and, and those social security numbers, I mean, that that's you know, sometimes the key to getting, you know, into bank account information, medical records, uh, you know, opening up credit cards for you know, some of these students who have no credit history. You know, those are those are a gold mine right now.
No, they usually aren't monitored when they're that young either. Mm -hmm. So it's also being reported by TechCrunch that the data trove also appears to include health information, including COVID nineteen test data, previous conviction reports, and psychological assessments. Wow. Of school. So you know you could potentially be looking at this information being used down the road to blackmail yep. and extort people just because, hey, we know this about you. And if you don't want us to release it, you got to, you know, send us 500 bucks or, mm -hmm. you know, keep coming back. That's, that's, you know, it's psychologically, these people are going to have a tough time dealing with what some of these criminals might do with this information. Um, you know, just to get a, a simple message from somebody with information that, you know, you deem private that somebody else shouldn't have is going to be disturbing enough to, to a lot of people. Um, it's not good. Um, and, and this is the stuff we talk about all the time on this show, right? Guys, is, you know, we're just seeing a massive amount of cyber attacks against companies and, and the average user's information is just out there. I mean, and, and, and I don't know when people are just going to start caring to the point where they're going to force companies to actually start spending money on this stuff. The businesses are not going to spend money. Companies are not going to spend money. School districts are not going to spend money. Municipalities are not going to spend money on this stuff. They're already, I mean, most municipalities in the United States are already running, you know, their budgets pretty close to, you know, negative, if not negative. Um, and where are they going to come up with this money to pay for all this stuff? That's what a lot of businesses are wrestling with and have been wrestling with for years. Um, but the problem is nobody's making them do it. So until somebody makes them do it, they're not going to spend the money on it. And that's, that's the reality of it. So, um, a lot of this is going to be parents and, and, you know, parents going to schools and school districts and demanding to know what they're doing for cybersecurity. Um, and another disturbing trend that I've read about around that specific situation is they're hiding behind certain rules uh, behind like the Freedom of Information Act. Like there's certain things that, that people don't have to give up if it compromises like knowledge of like inside the school or what computer systems or software or processes. They can kind of deny these requests or they can tell you we don't have to tell you because, you know, we don't want to tell the world what our, what our cybersecurity program looks at. Like they do that in, in my children's school around how they respond to active shooter situations. Like mm -hmm. you know, they give very little information about how they handle that because they don't want people figuring out ways to circumvent it. Um, I don't know. If you don't have a plan, then it allows you to say, I can't tell you about it. Then you don't know that you don't have a plan. Right. Or you don't, you know, or it becomes like, you know, you got to worry about the old boys club, right? Mm -hmm. Running that show. Like who are they giving the contract to and are they really qualified? You know what I mean? To yeah. like come in and tell you, you know, these things need to be done. Right. Or are they just, you know, they get a budget for cybersecurity and they're giving it to a buddy um, and they're not really taking it seriously. I mean, that's one scenario that can play out in these situations. Um and, you, and they don't necessarily have to tell you what they're doing because they can hide behind certain laws and regulations 
that allow them not to disclose this stuff. Um, so it would be interesting to see where this goes because taxpayers and 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 uh, parents of, of school districts are, are the ones who kind of sit in the driver's seat and can drive this stuff uh, to a place it needs to be. Um, but until that happens, we're going to continue to see municipalities and school districts and community colleges get hit with uh, ransomware because, you know, FBI and CISA says it, you know, this group, this vice society disproportionately targets this sector more than any, anybody. Um, so there are, there are, you know, basically they've verticalized on the K-12 and, uh, you know, cyber and, uh, and, and uh, community college sector, basically, is, that's their vertical. Um, and it's amazing. So, so Randy, what's going on over in Suffolk County, New York? What's, uh, yeah. what's happening? Well, just a little uh, follow-up to what we talked about last week. Um, they mentioned um, it was, you know, made uh, public that there was a ransomware attack actually happened back on September 8th. So they announced this past uh, Monday, which was yesterday, so 26 days after the initial attack, that they can start doing title searches again. Um, title searches are really important because um, the title companies make sure that your property that you want to buy is free and clear um, so they can put a, a insurance policy on it in case there's something they don't find. They have to do searches, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, short story long is real estate transactions have been held up basically the last 26 days. So this attack that happened um, almost a month ago, um, you know, they've not been able to do any of this um, until until Monday. They're still not all the way back. It says that they're frantically working to get everything else um, back up. But I think the the moral of the story here is this is a, you know, a relatively, you know, small county, if you will. We're not talking, you know, 500 gigabytes of data and, you know, 100,000, you know, 600,000 students like the last one we talked about. Um, but this is more in line with, you know, your average small and medium business and the kind of attack that they're going to go through. And, you know, bot bottom line, if you get hit by an attack, we're probably looking at three, four weeks minimum, you know, before you can start moving forward again. So that's the you know, that's a real lesson to learn here in this in this case. Yeah, I agree. Did they pay the ransom? Do we know? Um, I don't know that they that they have. <clears throat> this was the county we talked about last week that, you know, they brought in somebody who said it said they needed security. And, you know, so they hired like some IT person and then they checked their like DNS records on their website or something. It's like since then, it's also been in the news that all kinds of questions have been coming up you know, about what they say they did and how they handled it and all that uh, bottom line. So. so somebody watched our show and asked those questions. <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> maybe that would be quite ironic, but, you know, maybe so. Uh, yeah, so I don't know. It doesn't I can't find anything that says that they paid it. Yeah, I didn't I didn't see um, anything about that. Definitely, uh, definitely. But there's uh, yeah, there's a suburb in Denver also that's uh, 
under a ransomware attack and they're saying no to a $5 million demand. Mm. Um, I'm just picking that up as I'm looking to see if Suffolk uh, paid, but it doesn't look like it. Uh, Wheat Ridge, Colorado. They were breached on August 29th. Wow. So, so yeah. So interesting. Um, next topic I want to kind of talk about is how there's kind of a, now I hear people talking all the time and they're like, Hey, phishing is the number one way that you're going to get hit with ransomware. And um, that's not the case anymore. Um, there's a new king in town, so to speak, when it comes to getting exploit it. Now, it's been a thing for a long time, but new research is showing that vulnerability exploitation accounted for 52% of ransomware incidents investigated by SecureWorks over the past 12 months. That makes it the number one initial access vector for threat actors, uh, the vendor claimed in a new report in their state of the threat report. It is basically saying that um, the most favored ransomware uh, exploitation of bugs in internet-facing systems was favored by ransomware actors rather than the use of credentials, meaning breaking into your RDP or your VPN, or malicious emails, phishing attacks. Um, what are your thoughts behind this? I, I have a thought about this, and, and maybe the numbers might be skewed a little bit because of certain things that happened in the last year, but what are your thoughts behind this? It's an easy target. You know, a criminal is not going to break into your house to get the keys to break into your car. They're going to break into the car that's open, you know, that that has some type of vulnerability. So I think it does make sense. But I agree. We've been hearing phishing. You know, I, I've even heard 98 percent is happening through phishing. So now to hear this is kind of questionable. But but if it's an easy target, if, if the vulnerability is there, just go through it. And yeah, I think it can be they're, they're never going to give up until they find a way in. So they're going to be trying, trying everything. And, you know, I've been saying it for, for years that patching is the unsexiest of all these cybersecurity techniques. And, you know, this, this brings in the whole idea of patching because these vulnerabilities, a lot of them are discovered, they're made public and they need a patch on either the firmware or the software needs an update or windows needs an update. There needs to be a patch applied to prevent, um, you know, access um, like we're talking about here. And I know that that doesn't cover everything because we also have what's called zero day um, exploits or zero day vulnerabilities where that's basically where only the bad guys know about it. Um, but the bottom line is, you know, that's one of the things we can do to uh, to take care of that is patch, 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 patch. And a lot of times these are combination attacks too. So it's not just a vulnerability that was used. It's not just a phishing credential that, that was used. A lot of times it's a chain of attacks that use a lot of these things. Mm -hmm. So somebody's Gmail account gets hacked. You know, they take passwords out of their, their Chrome browser. They get into a corporate network and then they exploit vulnerabilities to move laterally. So right. a lot of times, you know, they're, they're really pulling into their, their, their bag of tricks for some of these things. And it's not, not just one thing. That one thing just was the start of the larger attack. Right. I do think that this is a trend that we're going to see continue go in the direction of, of up. I think vulnerability exploitation, uh, you know, we're in the early stages of learning everything that people can do 
by manipulating technology. That's really what's going on here. Um, that's the, the easiest way I can put it. Um, well, a lot of times are never going to go away either. They're just going to keep getting worse. The more complex software gets and the, the, the more lines of code you add, the, the more you know, opportunities yeah, I mean, you have to miss something. And there's just, we only know what we know, right? Mm -hmm. We don't know what we don't know, right? So if somebody can figure out, hey, if I slam, you know, a bunch of zeros at the end of this URL, I can break into this server, I can, you know, overtake it. You know, these are all things that have, are that, you know, the, it's almost like an infinite amount of possibilities that mm -hmm. lie in the hands of somebody who looks for vulnerabilities. Um, you know, the person who develops the software, or the hardware, their job is to make it work, right? Mm -hmm. And yes, there's now being more attention paid to, you know, securing, but they can only secure what's already been discovered, right? So if somebody discovers something tomorrow, which is what Randy mentioned about zero days, then that thing's now a vulnerability. And this is kind of the world we live in when we when we cho choose to go the way of technology, that these things are going to become, these issues are going to become part of our, our lives and we have to deal with them. A um, couple of things that come to mind for me, I think, number one, we know that the exchange vulnerability, and we're just talking about publicly facing and, you know, things, assets that are, that you can reach from the internet. So I think exchange was a contributor. I think there were probably several firewalls. Several you know, exchange I, vulnerabilities. <laughs> several exchange <laughs> vulnerabilities, yes. <laughs> and then several firewall vulnerabilities mm -hmm. that I that we're aware of in the last 12 months. And then the the there are several like NAS devices, like QNAT NAS devices. They've had a bunch of issues. Um, you know, over the past 12 months, I think two or three times their devices have been able to basically be infiltrated and, and, and basically every file on them encrypted. Um, anything else you guys can think of that may have contributed to this kind of number going up? I mean, you know, we're not talking about credentials. We're just talking about like, you know, something being on that device that somebody was able to, you know, we We've seen a lot of, we've talked about a lot of uh, attacks that have involved, you know, the exfiltration of source code and kind of the, the response is, oh, big deal. It was yeah, just code. wasn't anything important, but that's how people find some of these vulnerabilities. Yep. They examine that yep. source code. It's kind of looking under the hood and being able to see uh, the, the inner workings as opposed to stumbling out of vulnerability accidentally. So those are huge, I think. And I, yeah, it, I, I would imagine that the, the VMware, I'm sure knuckleheads have, ESXi exposed to the internet and that's being exploited as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so some of this stuff, you know, like I said, it's some of this stuff is, is knuckleheads just exposing things to the internet, either not knowing what they're doing or not realizing the risk of doing so. I mean, if there's no real need to have something accessible from the internet, um, you shouldn't have it accessible from the internet. I mean, mm -hmm. it's pretty simple. Like, put a firewall in place, do something to block that traffic from getting to said device. Um, you know, another one that comes to mind is probably, you know, depending on who installed your cameras in your house or your office, um, you know, if it uses a DVR that connects to the internet and that's how you kind of log in and, and look at your phones, very big vulnerability probably sitting on your network. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, you know, 
so those are the things that I think of that come to mind that people might have, you know, that they might want to take a double, double look at to see if, you know, that thing's exposed to the internet and if it has any vulnerabilities. Uh, and the other thing too is, is it's very easy to scan an IP address or a, or a domain name um, from the outside to determine uh, whether you have these vulnerabilities or not. There's a search engine called Shodan um, that if you just type in your IP address, it'll show you everything it knows about your IP address and what could yep. be behind uh, your IP address. Um, so these are all tools that, you know, are good for your own knowledge, but they're also very good tools for hackers to use to figure out how they can get you. Um, you know, insurance I, companies are using them now too to, you know, validate policies. 100%. Yeah. Yep. And as more things are moving to the cloud, we have a lot of people that don't want to spend money on subscriptions. So they have these legacy systems, uh, programs, whatever it's doing for them. And because they don't want to move up or they can't find a solution to move up, they have these legacy systems and plenty of vulnerabilities in those. You know, um, well, Brian, you're, all, you're always mentioning segmentation, you know, um, and we all believe in it, obviously. But, you know, this this really underscores the importance of segmentation, not just from, you know, a virtual land, a virtual land, a virtual land, but but also thinking through your security stack. Um, thinking through basically everything to where, okay, what if there is a vulnerability you don't know about? Okay, what am I doing to mitigate that, to limit that if there is a vulnerability that's found in their inside the, uh, the network? Um, just, it just shows the importance of thinking through top to bottom um, and keeping everything as separate as much as you can um, to make it hard, even if there is a vulnerability and they get in or Maybe there's a vulnerability and they're able to see it, but they're not able to do anything with it because you mm -hmm. have it segmented off somehow um, using your uh, your software stack. That's just some. Well, I think that's that's why vulnerability scanning is so important. And I mean, if you look at most IT providers, they're not specifically scanning for vulnerabilities. They're scanning to make sure patches were applied. But that you know that covers a certain segment of vulnerabilities. But there, there's other ones out there that there may not be a patch for. And if you're not aware that that's sitting there. You can't take action, like Randy right. said, or maybe segment that temporarily until uh, a patch is, is found for that, that vulnerability. And I think mm -hmm. that's important to look at it the right way. So what's that? So I wanna, we're going to jump into a little bit more of a deeper discussion on vulnerabilities towards the end so we can give people an, an idea. But um, Ferrari apparently fell victim to a ransomware attack. Um, as we mentioned, a luxury car manufacturer um, is basically refuting that. This time on Ferrari, both set. Oh, that was me. Sorry. <laughs> it was, it was the, the story for this one. <laughs> Barely had audio. But I changed my voice there. <laughs> so uh, they're basically saying that they didn't have a ransomware attack, but there's people refuting that. And there's a uh, leak on a tour site by the group Ransom EXX, and it claimed it had breached Ferrari stealing 6.99 gigabytes of data can fit on a flash drive. Um, basically says it included internal documents, but data sheets and repair manuals. Um, and I think Ferrari's been hit in the past. Um, indirectly, it was a, it was a, a supplier of, of uh, Ferrari, but they, they were hit with a ransomware attack. Um, Interesting to see what happens here. There's not a lot of meat on this bone, 
Um, I like the statement though that, that they refuted that there was a ransomware attack because you know none of their, there was no disruption in business operations. Okay, but then they also added that there was no evidence of a breach of their company system, except for the data that was exposed. Yeah, <laughs> like exactly. that, that little tidbit. Yeah, I mean, and that, and it's like I don't know when you interrupt Ferrari operations. Does anyone notice? <laughs> I mean, what do they make like fifteen hundred cars a year? I mean. I don't know how many cars they make a year, but it can't be many. How many, how many Ferraris are being bought out there? Um, but this is one of those, uh, hey, we'll find out later. Yeah. You know, it's a, but it's a big name, uh, big car company. Um, see what happens. Seven, seven gigs of data is not a lot of data, but how'd they get it? You know? Right. I mean, and part of me wonders is you know, they just don't have evidence of, of you know, a traditional hack type situation but this could have been something as simple like you pointed out this this could fit on a, on a flash drive so was it an employee who just you know loaded one up and walked right out? I mean, that's still a breach of the company's systems yeah that shouldn't be something you're able to do oh it's no big deal right we'll just no you know, come on now if it's seven gigabytes of we don't just, have to tell nobody <laughs> if it's seven <laughs> gigabytes of just personal records that would be a crap ton of records um mm -hmm. but if you know, we don't really know what it is. I mean, this could be three office installers, you know, and, uh, you know, a hundred records. You really, you really don't know. We're kind of in the nothing to hear stage and it is October 4th. So my mm -hmm. prediction is um, Halloween weekend. Um, we'll get the details rolled out for this while we're all worried about candy and our, and our costume. So, yeah, the, the only information they said of, of what the, the ransomware gang is claiming that the data includes is uh, internal documents uh, data sheets and repair manuals. So that could mean a lot of things. I, I mean, those could be downloaded from the internet. I don't think anybody, like the only people that need repair manuals are Ferrari, you know, <clears throat> like service people. Ain't nobody on a Ferrari working on that. The internal Ferrari. documents could mean anything. <laughs> I mean, that could be a, a, yeah, a parts, different thing. parts manuals. Or it could be, you know, credit yeah. applications. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or can you afford a Ferrari yep. applications? All right. So guys, let's wrap uh, for about the next five, 10 minutes and kind of go into what we were talking about earlier when we were talking about uh, the ransomware access vector, the number one thing being bug exploitation. And, you know, first let's kind of break down for our audience. What, what is a vulnerability? I mean, just in your opinion, you know, talk about what it can affect, you know, is it hardware, is it software, is it both? Um, and and really just what is it? Like, you know, and, and give people an idea of, you know, because like I think people hear vulnerabilities, but if they're not in our world, they don't really understand, you know, what that could possibly mean. Um, so let's just dig into that and then we'll talk about yeah. some other things. I like to describe them as loopholes to people. So, so you've got, you know, the, the code for a given, you know, software or you know, firmware, and you've got these commands and, and these days they're very, very complex. They can be millions upon millions of lines of code. And when you're doing that, it's to do a certain thing, but because they end up getting so complicated, sometimes there's loopholes that can kind of inadvertently be included in there that somebody will stumble upon uh, most of the time. And, uh, that allows them to do things that they weren't originally intended to do. So um, there was uh, 
uh, you know, like the Log4j, I think that, that's a good example. So, you know, stumbled upon by, you know, putting certain characters into chat on a Minecraft server, gave them access to the entire server. So just really goofy little things like that um, are oftentimes what, what a vulnerability amounts to. Yeah, and it could be, uh, from a hardware standpoint, too, just like you mentioned, it could, it's just manipulating the software, right, or the mm -hmm. firmware to do something it wasn't designed to do. And, you know, I've seen hardware hackers where, uh, and, you know, this is should be news to nobody. If you remember back in the 70s and 80s with, like, phone hacking, you used to be mm -hmm. able to, like, use your, your dial pad to, like, do, di you know, different, manipulate different phone calls and things like that. Yeah. Um, or, or call in the systems and, and manipulate them using, you know, phone keypad. Yeah. And the, you know, so you can manipulate hardware by just rewiring circuits or, or re, you know, changing the direction of the, the electricity flow on the, on the board. There's people who are that good at hacking where they, you know, that's like NSA, you know, CIA level type stuff where you're, you know, manipulating boards and chips to do things so you can hack them. Um, but these are all things that, you know, when you boil it down, it, it all basically goes down to the same system as manipulating the device to make it do something it wasn't designed to do and to see if it gets you further, you know, access to that system. <clears throat> yeah. And in this, in this case that we're looking at, they're doing something like that to be able to get access to the kernel and to bypass some of the traditional calls that some of the security software uses um, to basically just get in the kernel is like the basic, you know, it's like the tiny little brain at the center of the operating system. And it's, it's usually, the kernel, man. It's the kernel. Well, I know, yeah. that, you know maybe all our listeners yeah. don't know that, um, <laughs> but you know, bottom line, when you can get in there and manipulate it and bypass security protocol, you can do almost anything. I, I would say that this particular uh, vulnerability is one that puts a little fear in the hearts of security people because, you know, this is pretty sophisticated. You know, this isn't like just downloading a bunch of usernames and passwords off of, you know, the internet and then sending people endless, you know, MFA um, attempts until they say yes because they're sleepy. I mean, this one here is actually extremely sophisticated and took, you know, took a sophisticated programmer to uh, to figure it out. So, well, that's why when people find these vulnerabilities, depending on what it allows them to do, they, they may hold on to them for years until they find the right, you know, circumstance yes. to, to use yes. them. Because, you know, in a lot of cases, once you, once you burn it, once you use it the first time, now it's exposed. And, and, and then that's when people are going to go out and start patching it to, to fix that vulnerability. So what Randy is referring to is um, a vulnerability that was discovered in a driver for a graphics card. So if you know you have this particular graphics card, this vulnerability can be used to basically overtake your system uh, and and deploy ransomware and make it so it's undetected by your endpoint software. So many of you have probably invested in some kind of endpoint software, you know, think uh, WebRoot, think Sophos, think uh, Norton even has an endpoint product. Um, there's tons of them out there. And it, your security vendor, your IT person probably sold you on this. You probably see it running down by your clock if you have Windows in your system tray. Um, you know that it's there. You might think it's protecting you from everything in the world, from bad, bad that can happen. 
And it's things like this that circumvent that. And your software would not even detect that this is happening on your system. So that's the important thing to know is like, yeah, yeah, it's there. Yeah, it's running. Yeah, it's working fine. It's completely updated. Um, you know, yeah, you check that box on your cyber insurance application saying that you, you have it and you have a way to make sure it's updated. This just completely circumvents it. So, you know, it goes into two discussions, right? Is how do you know you have these things? Number one, and then how do you, how do you really protect yourself? If you can get around that and you can get around MFA, what, what's going to protect me? You know, that's kind of the two questions I'm going to ask you guys to kind of wrap up with here is like, so let's go go to the, the latter one first. How how do you protect yourself if, you know, you're telling me in one show you can get around my MFA and then this show you're telling me you can get around my endpoint protection? You know, if I don't have MFA and endpoint, how do I protect myself? I mean, that's why you can't trust any one layer. You need to have multiple layers and, and assume that one or, or more of them is going to fail at, at a given point and have something in place to protect against them. That's, that's what kind of concerns me about, uh, you know, it, it's great that the insurance industry right now is starting to have requirements, but, but they're really just adding them on as, as like a high profile thing happens. So, you know, we, we want you to have uh, detection endpoint detection because, you know, that's what we're seeing protect stuff. And now that that's, you know, not foolproof. Now they add one other layer as opposed to having like just a list of layers altogether to start with. You know, it's, it's just kind of, it's, it's getting better, but it's still, in my opinion, setting people up for failure. So how do I protect myself? My MFA don't work and my endpoint don't work. Well, get, get a cybersecurity company. They're going to yeah. be making sure that you're, you're going to be getting your updates and they're going to help you with those layers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, go, going at it from, we all know this, but going at it from a zero trust perspective, um, which starts with, you know, assuming that the bad actors are in there, they're going to get in there and setting things up um, accordingly. Um you know, and then I already mentioned it earlier, but, you know, the unsexiest of all the cybersecurity techniques, patching, you know, make sure you're patching. I mean, we could probably do a little round robin here and name two or three things that are kind of our favorites um, of, you know, things we can do. I don't know if that's where you're kind of leading us, uh, Brian, because I've got a list. <laughs> I'm just looking for your advice on how, you know, somebody, you know, we, we talk about these layers. How do we how do we protect ourselves from these things, if my MFA is not going to work and my endpoint's not going to really find everything it needs to find, um, you know, because I think a lot of these tools, you know, and, and why I bring this up and why I want to highlight it is I think a lot of these tools are sold today to people with the misconception that their mm -hmm. tool is the silver bullet. Like this mm -hmm. is all you need. Um, and you know, a, I'm trying to highlight that, but I'm also trying to give people some practical things that they could start looking at saying like, Oh, you know, we're not doing that. Maybe yeah. we should look into that. I mean, the way that I look at it is it, it's, it's chicken soup, right? You need chicken soup in order to protect your business. There's not one ingredient that goes into that chicken soup. There's not two ingredients that goes into that chicken soup. There's a handful of ingredients that goes into that chicken soup. Randy's ingredients might be different. Andre's ingredients might be different. My ingredients might be different. So long as that chicken soup on the end makes those ingredients make chicken soup, 
that's what you need to protect yourself. And so when I'm talking about chicken soup, I'm talking about having a framework in place, something that solves for certain things. The tools solve for things. You're not using the tools to to fit. You know, a, a, you know, it's 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 not about the tools so much as it is about what solutions they provide and what what the, ingredient they are to the overall soup. The tools are basically a means to an end, yeah. um, and the end is is fulfilling that framework. Yeah, that's a great mm -hmm. point. Yeah, I would say, and just I, I love the I love the answer, Ryan. I would just add to that and say. Yeah, these, these are the things that you put in place. And yes, they are not 100%, you know, fail safe. That's why you need to be able to like, my, my number one thing is like, oh, if that fails and that fails, you better be ready to go into response mode, mm -hmm. right? And that's what you mean by a framework, right? Being able to basically go turn and go into your response mode because I'm kind of saying these things, letting people know like, these things are going to fail and you're going to, you are going to be dealing with a cyber attack one day and you're going to say to yourself, well, I thought I was doing everything right. That's right. You can do everything right and still have a cyber attack. And that's the important thing to walk away from here. Um, and it lends itself to what we were talking about earlier with vulnerabilities and, you know, look, there's really good people out there. I'm trying to get one of them on the show. Um, Ken, you need to come on the show. Um, but who are on the good side of looking for these vulnerabilities at the level that Randy talked about. Right. And that's what I want to kind of go back to is Randy talked about really super smart guys who find this stuff. Right. But here's the problem when the really super smart guys find this stuff and it becomes known and it's not handled the right way, or it's found by a bad guy, then the really super smart guys can then enable the script kitties to exploit your systems, right? So it takes one really smart guy, you know, let's call it the 1% to find this stuff. But once they find it, the 99% can exploit it, mm -hmm. right? They just have to know about it. And that's the scary part. Like it's, 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 you know, you don't need a whole lot of people working on finding vulnerabilities, you just need to find the vulnerabilities and then you can have an army of people trying to work to exploit them. And we also can't assume that once a, a company or a vendor has been notified of a, of a vulnerability that they're going to really jump to fixing it. Really not. I mean, like they knew about that vulnerability for six months and it was they're just about to be patched. <laughs> they're going to deny it. They're going to put the onus on you to prove that it actually can be exploited which basically means they're being lazy and they're saying, well, you do my work, Mr. Security researcher. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, security researchers are like, no problem, but are you going to pay me for, for my work? No, because they expect it to be done for free. Mm -hmm. um, so, and then they don't pay on the back end when they finally say, oh yeah, that actually is a problem and we should fix that. Mm -hmm. And then they just give kudos to the person and they don't pay them, you know, they write them up in the CVE. Special thanks to so and so for helping us figure this out. That person or even worse, in my opinion, you Fs, security researcher comes to you with a thing and then you start patching it quietly. And then all of a sudden it's not a thing anymore. Right. And that's BS. And that happens a lot too. So let's just jump into some vulnerability. Uh, management best practices. Um, I guess we could go around the horn and kind of um, either, you know, an example of a, of a, of a, of a, an attack or, or, or a vulnerability that was used to exploit and what are, 
you know, maybe some advice on how you would handle that or how you recommend a business handle that. I kind of mentioned the exchange stuff is something we could talk about here. Um, use exchange. <laughs> um, and that really is just in a high level, like how, you know, quickly, how do you guys find and discover vulnerabilities? That's the number one thing. I mean, let's just, you know, talk at, at it at a high level. Um, you know, do you have to have some super almost like rocket science, you know, programmer, you know, banging away on all your stuff 24 seven or is there, are there better, more efficient ways to get this stuff done? No, there, there, there are tools. And I, I, that's, that's my, my thing is, is making sure that you're scanning specifically for vulnerabilities uh, using a tool that uh, stays as up to date as possible. Uh, because like I said, you know, you, you can you know be a hundred percent up to date on your patching and still have vulnerabilities exist uh, in, in your network and on your infrastructure. You need to be aware of those because you know some of them are going to take a little bit of extra uh, finesse or um, uh, planning in order to prevent them from being exploited. So just being aware of those, I think, is is number one. I, I would say also work with your work with your vendors. Um, you know, because we, we've mentioned tools, a lot of times the tools involve a security operations center or security team, um, several vulnerabilities that have come out and been made aware uh, that people were made aware of, say, in the last uh, six months, one or multiple of vendors took, you know, took steps to mitigate for it. Some of the bigger ones. Like maybe they rolled out a log4j scanner or a log4j, you know, um, how to fix the vulnerability. Um, so I would say stay in touch with your your vendors and stay up with what's going on in the market as these things are discussed. There's no way you can keep up with all of them. Um, the, the big ones percolate to the top and then you use a specific scanner like Ryan mentioned, mm -hmm. you know, to scan for the thousands and thousands and thousands that exist out there and, and be careful that the patch for the vulnerability doesn't have its own vulnerability <laughs> i'm talking to you microsoft <laughs> yeah you know i mean bottom line let's say someone clicks on a phishing email yeah. if a process is allowed to open um this is a potential scenario i'm not saying this is how they all go down but that process could literally basically open up on the inside and then just start scanning the network and it's going, to, it's going to look for these vulnerabilities that we're talking about. If they're unpatched, then it can phone home. It can download on the fly. It's called living off the land. Mm -hmm. You can download on the fly tools to pet to take advantage of that vulnerability. And, you know, just like a hermit crab finding a shell, you know, it can basically get inside of one of those vulnerabilities and basically establish a hard, you know, a hard presence inside your network. And from there, you know, just it's going to keep doing it and it's going to get worse and worse so yeah and uh, for me in addition to what you guys said we we subscribe to CISO, which is the um basically the government's agency for cybersecurity. and every day two or three emails and we're just you know skimming through it just to see if it's any products or anything that we're using that we need to be aware of and then we, we take charge if, if it is yeah vulnerability management uh number one you, you, you need to be scanning at a lot of different levels. Um, I know we mentioned scanning, but you got to be scanning, you know, for firm, firmware vulnerabilities in, in your devices, like your printers and you know, maybe cameras or internet IoT devices you have on the network. Um, 
obviously Windows updates are important and you want to make sure that you're, you're scanning for those and you know that your systems are updated, um, but also third party software. You might want to make sure that all those pieces of software you install um, are, are running an updated version. Um, you don't know how many times we scan corporate networks and we find, you know, 20 different versions of Adobe Acrobat because everybody's on a, on a different flavor, a different version because people aren't, updating or there's no uh, process or, or easy way or automated way to get all those things updated all at once. So, you know, basically, you know, they might not get updated ever. You know, you, you install it on the system, you give the person their computer and, and for whatever reason, that particular software just stays on that version forever and ever. And then over time, you're adding employees and they get different versions of it. And then you have all these different versions out there that, you know, you have to deal with them. And if you're not managing them properly, that's when we usually see these things like, oh, you think you're putting the latest version on all your systems, but you have systems, you know, out there that were released two, three years ago that are running two, three year old software. There's no way to manage those internal applications. That's the biggest thing that I think I see is they miss people miss that people miss really understanding how many different versions of software they have on their windows or mac systems it doesn't matter that you're patching windows if these pieces of software have vulnerability you got to have a way of scanning your network and knowing what's out there and knowing what software is out there and, and to add to that brian i think it's also important to make sure you're vetting your software vendors you know if you're using like a small independent mom and pop type software mm -hmm. company you know they may not have the client base to even have any visibility on whether or not there's there's vulnerabilities in their systems i mean I, i've seen yep. some stuff where like you look at it for five seconds when you have to like reinstall it on a new computer. You're like, you can't install this. You can't, you need to find another piece. You know, of software. And the other thing too is, is anybody along the way who's had the bright idea to have their own software written for their company, mm -hmm. um, you know, you're now responsible for the security of that software mm -hmm. and that code base uh, to make sure you know, I, I know tons of companies that, you know, back in the early 2000s had something written. They still use it today. You know, it's, it's the person it's, who wrote it is no longer there. The person who wrote it is no longer there. And they never thought one iota about security because they didn't have to back then. Right. So now they have these applications that are running that probably are chock full of all different kinds of vulnerabilities that use things like Randy mentioned earlier, you know, they interact with the system in a way where they can use a vulnerability to get to, you know, the kernel, which is basically mm -hmm. ones and zeros of the system. Mm -hmm. And then they can get control. And you wouldn't think that some dumb application that you had written back in 2002 would do that, but absolutely 100% that can be a thing. Um, so just be yeah. mindful of that. Cause Ryan mentioned, you know, those mom and pop, but I also know tons of companies have had yep. their own software written. I'd like to give a little example of that because, you know, you mentioned the mom and pop. One, one of our clients has a little timekeeper um, that the, the employees out on the field can enter in their time. And, you know, so we're doing a log4j scan um, for or scan for vulnerabilities on the network and it pops up log4j. And so we reached out to the vendor and they're like, yeah, we don't really use it, though. It's safe. And so we put a <laughs> log on it. And sure enough, it's phoning home like every other minute. So we basically just ring fenced it um, to where it can't reach to the outside. It can't communicate any kind of information. But but bottom line is, you're right. You got a little mom and pop vendor. They probably have no idea about this. 
you know, and you've got to uh, be proactive about it. Sometimes maybe you don't choose a vendor because, you know, they are running off something that's from 2000, you know, and they've never changed it. Yeah. Or, or you don't think to yourself, wow, if we have that, if we, if we have this application written for our business, we, we don't need to pay somebody for some software license. You know, you know, I see a lot of that being the reason that companies do this kind of thing because they look at a company and they go, well, I don't want to pay them 1200 a year for, you know, support licenses and updates. So I'm just going to go have somebody create this thing for me. That'll basically do what I need it to do. Right. And now, you're in the business of making sure that that gets updated every year and it's secure. That's why you pay that company 1200 bucks a year for that support for, for those updates, because they're, you know, taking the security off your plate for that software and they're, they're, they're doing it. Right. And that's, you know, and I, I see a lot of people make those kinds of decisions. Like right, we'll go have our own thing written then we mm-hmm. own it and we don't have to pay anybody any money moving forward and we'll try to use it for 25 years. All of that's a bad idea. Yeah, I actually had one guy tell me, <laughs> I pointed out a, a, some issues with his software from a security standpoint. And he said, ah, I'm retiring in the next year. So, you know, I'm not going to worry about it. <laughs> cool. Well, my clients can keep moving <laughs> yeah. to something else. So good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. All right, boys. Good show. Thank you. We're almost an hour. We'll get uh, Andre to his meeting. And, All right. Uh, We'll see everybody in the next episode. Don't forget to share our show. We'll see you in the next one. Take care. Good one. See you. Bye, y'all.